You know, I've been around a long time. I know how hard this is. From the political science department at UW-Madison. Am I exasperated? Absolutely, I'm exasperated. I'm Adam Wigger. This country's gone through tough times before, and we're going to do it again. And I'm Sam Beisman. This is more work than in my previous life. I thought it would be easier. And this is 1050 Bascom. Today on the podcast, we are happy to once again talk with Professor Reed Lei about a new Chinese politics course he's teaching in the fall. Professor Lee's research and teaching interests include autocracy, Chinese politics, local governments, political economy of development, public finance, and judicial politics. Today we'll ask Professor Lei about the topics he plans to cover in his fall course, as well as questions about some contemporary Chinese political issues and concerns in the international system more generally. Thank you, Professor Lei, so much for being with us today and for coming back on to 1050 Bascom. My pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Let's jump right into the new Chinese politics course that you're teaching this fall. Could you give us an overview of the course and some of the topics you're planning on covering? So absolutely. So actually, this is not a new course. Uh, I've taught this course uh, one time last year through the, um, unfortunately, through Zoom. Uh, so it's not a brand new course. Uh, we are going to, I, I received the, um, the, the permission yesterday that we are going to teach the course under the course number, uh, Political Science 324. Uh, the, the course name is, I think, the Com- Contemporary Power in China, uh, something like that. Uh, so it's going to be a broad introduction to Chinese politics. Um, so the first half of the class is going to focus on the political institutions in China. And the second half of the class will focus on some special topics, including uh, the failed economic reform under Chairman Mao, Mao Zedong, and the most successful one under Deng Xiaoping after 1978, and some governing challenges under the current administration, including corruption, uh, public opinion, COVID-19. I understand we are going to talk about that. So the, cl- the class is structured in this way. Right. So the first half is more about the foundational understanding of China's political institutions, including, uh, for example, the function of the party, the function of the government, the function of the legislature, the function of the court, and so on and so forth. So these are the political institutions that uh, we have in the United States, we have in, the, in Britain, in every country, but we don't understand how they function in a very different country like China. Right? So we are going to introduce how they function. And the second half is more like the application to how the, how the country uses these political institutions to a failed reform and a more successful reform, uh, first in the 1950s and 60s, and then the second one after 1978, and in today's China for pressing governing issues. It seems to us that understanding Chinese politics for students of politics and history is more important than ever, even urgent in the context of international relations and the rise of China as a global power. Can you maybe tell us why you wanted to teach this course right now in that context and maybe why there might be such a special urgency? So the, the, the quick answer to that is I'm hired to teach this course, but there is a longer version. I'd love, I'd love to talk about the longer version. So in the past weekend, if you follow the news, uh, there was a very important meeting happening in England, in Britain. Um, that is G7 meeting. And the 
I believe if you read the headlines in the in the American media, you are going to find the most important topic in that meeting was China. And I believe that the same the same theme showed up together with Russia, uh, showed up in the NATO meeting in yesterday. Right? So it becomes very clear that you like it or not, it's going to be an international issue, right, for many countries to consider, especially for the Biden administration, which makes it very clear that it will uh, work together with its traditional allies to deal with China. Right? So this is the theme in the past weekend. And there's another issue, right? It's not just an international problem. China is also an example for many things to get done. Biden administration is press is press forward um, a, a, a new legislation to empower the government to reinvest in critical infrastructure. Right? Uh, China has done pretty well in the past several years in investing in infrastructure. Um, so give you the number. Uh, I my my dissertation is about infrastructure investment in China. Uh, so Back in, when I used the latest data, I think that at that time was 2014, China invested more in infrastructure, focused on transportation infrastructure, including either road or railway. China invested more than the total of all the OECD countries and plus some representative developing countries like India, Russia. So that means China did invest a lot of money in improving its infrastructure which does not seem to be a thing that can be easily get done by many other countries, including the United States, because we have seen um, in the news report that the Biden administration has made some problem in pushing that, that, that act through the Congress. So this is a puzzle that we want to understand how, why some countries like China has done, uh, I'm not going to say, say too well, but it has definitely done a very different way than many other countries. So these are the reasons why I think it's important to understand Chinese politics more than ever, borrowing the word from Edison. Right? So first of all, it's going to be an, a very important international issue. Uh, many countries are going to deal with China. Countries have very different views. Let's, let's take G7 meeting as one example. Uh, there is clear division even within G7 with the European leaders less willing to uh, call China out and uh, turn G7 into an anti-China bloc. But uh, um, America, uh, Canada, and some other countries are more willing uh, to confront China directly. Right? So there are very different views even within G7. Let alone, let's even consider many other developing countries, right? in Africa, in Southeast Asia. Right? So they have very different views. And uh, how we are going to deal with China hugely depends on uh, whether we have a scientific and uh, um, correct understanding of, of how China's political system works. And the second question is why China has done pretty well, economic, especially in economic governance, right? In investing in infrastructure and improving the livelihood of the uh, very poor people. Uh, last year, China concluded its uh, anti-poverty anti campaign declaring that all the uh, people below the extreme poverty line uh, were, were, were alleviated from their extreme uh, poverty. Right? So how China uh, accomplished such goals, I understand this uh, poverty issue, inequality issue is also a very pressing issue in the United States. 
together with other countries, and to understand such issues like poverty, inequality, and infrastructure investment, it's important to understand uh, China's political system and how that system allows the government to achieve these goals. So if the students are interested in such issues, I will encourage them to take a look at my class because some of my students have told me this, and this is one of the goals I taught this class. China has done many things very differently. And that different style is very foreign to American students, even to many students who came from China. Uh, so we want to understand how the system works or doesn't work in some cases. Definitely. And in that course, why is it important to begin the study of Chinese politics with a historical overview of China's political development from the late Qing dynasty to the present? And what are some of those highlights of areas that you're going to cover in the course? So we are not going to cover too much about the history. Um, so we are mostly going to go back to the 1950s under Mao's leadership and then uh, Deng Xiaoping's economic reform starting from 1978. So we are not going to go back too further back to the uh, history of China. But you are right. It's important to understand China's history. So you mentioned uh, Qing Dynasty, which is the last dynasty of China, which ended in 1911. That was a very important period of time for people, especially for American students uh, and our students to understand Chinese politics and, the China, and China's way to deal with other countries. In the, in the past weekend, as I mentioned, there was a G7 meeting and there were a public discussion about that meeting in mainland China as well. American people would like to talk about it. Chinese people also would like to talk about it. Uh, many people mentioned, and I believe the government also sanctioned this as well, about the very salient event uh, in Qing dynasty, late Qing dynasty. And that was the eight countries invaded, eight foreign countries invaded into China and forced China to sign a very humiliating uh, unfair treaty to the eight countries. Unfortunately, uh, those eight countries co uh, overlapped very much with the G7 countries. So that reminded the Chinese people of that very humiliating history that they experienced. So many people, was, so government definitely played a part in directing people to think about that. But that is also a very uh, undeniable historical fact that this history did happen. And that was indeed a very humiliating uh, treaty that the Chinese government signed. Uh, I still remember that uh, uh, the amount of money that the eight countries demanded from uh, Chinese government was each Chinese person had to pay a one unit of silver to those eight countries. The, the number was designed exactly to humiliate the Chinese government. So everybody has to pay one unit of silver. Um, so many Chinese people would view that through a historical lens, exactly as Claire mentioned, right? So how the history is going to uh, influence uh, today's governance. And to be honest, it's not only 100 years ago to how, how Qing dynasty uh, affected today's government. In fact, the Chinese political history can date back to even 2000 years ago. One of the most important institutions uh, in today's China, the, the internal passport system, the, the household registration system, in other words, was invented by the first emperor in China in Qing dynasty, the first dynasty, more than 2000 years ago. And it was still in, in power in today's China, even though the central government was trying to get rid of it. So it is a very um, important thing to understand the history. 
However, I'm not going to delve too much into it. Uh, the students are interesting. If the students are interested in this topic, we are happy to talk about that. And uh, there are also some very important, very good uh, history classes taught by other departments as well. How have the institutional features of the Chinese political system evolved over time, so to speak? Th that is a very broad question again. Um, so uh, the shorter version is that it changes a lot, uh, but there is a very stable theme throughout the changes. Uh, if we follow up the, the earlier question, if we view Chinese political history from a very long historical view, let's think about it from the 2000 years of historical view, then the theme is there is a, always a division, a battle between the emperor and the prime minister. So the emperor is always trying to, to, get, to get the power from the prime minister, right? So in the past, this is the, the central theme throughout the Chinese dynasties. Uh, no matter who the emperor is, no matter the emperor is a Han Chinese, a Mongolian, or is a Manchurian, or the, there are some dynasties are ruled not by the Han Chinese, um, they're by uh, some uh, ethnic minorities. The same, this is the central theme. And this central theme even goes back to today's China. Uh, we don't have the emperor ever uh, after 1911, but uh, we have a, a state leader or party leader, the general secretary, uh, who is also known as Xi Jinping. And we also have a, a leader of the government, uh, the, pro, the premier. Uh, this is no, no longer a, a very heated question in today's uh, Xi Jinping's government, government, but it was a question at the very beginning of his government that everybody believed that he was uh, taking away the power from the government, from the, the prime minister. If we view the very long historical view, this is always a central theme. Another central theme, uh, not from very long historical view, but from this view China from after 1949, that is when Mao Zedong uh, established the, the, the new China, People's Republic of China. Um, so there are basically two periods of time. The first period of time was the first 30 years, that is before 1978, when the economic reform started. Right. And the second period of time was after 1978. The 1978 was the, uh, the, the division of the two periods of time. Right. So there is, and I believe there is still a very strong um, rethinking about the first 30 years. How do Chinese, government, how do Chinese people and the, the, the party view the first 30 years? Right. Uh, which part of the political institutions that we want to continue to have and which part we want to abandon so that's, that's still a central theme. And more specifically and more importantly, there was a very important event uh, in the first 30 years that, it, that was the Cultural Revolution, starting from 1966, ended uh, in 1976, so 10 years. In those 10 years, there was basically no real governance, uh, total chaos. The, the government depends on military to maintain the basic uh, social stability. So that was a total a mess uh, in China. So the Deng government and later afterwards, uh, people were thinking about what we could do to prevent such a, such a thing happening again, right? So there are two major developments after 1978. What the first one, which was also insisted today is to introduce um, some sense of the rule of law, the legality, 
right? Because they thought the, uh, the, the problem with the Cultural Revolution and the Great Leap Forward uh, was due to uh, the fact that the leaders do not honor the laws. They do not follow the laws. The party doesn't follow the law. So there was a very consistent um, uh, efforts of the Chinese government to build upon the rule of law. Although this is not the kind of checks and balances that the, the American government and the other democracies have, right? There's no checks and balances towards the party. But the party is very uh, interested in building the judiciary system, the legislative systems, so that they can check the government, but not the party. Right? The party is always about everything, but they, they are very interested in ha having the court and the uh, legislature to hold the government, the bureaucracy accountable. So this is the one, one of the developments. The other one um, is democracy. Well, believe it or not, there was some sense of elections in China, at least in the past. And that was the experimented in the 1980s and 1990s. And one of them even um, stating today is China, but, but greatly reduced, uh, the, its function was greatly re reduced. That was the village elections in China. So the village heads were elected directly by people, but uh, the, uh, I believe Xi Jinping government had some uh, restrictions on its function. But anyways, this is another kind of thing that the Chinese government has been thinking about to prevent the Cultural Revolution from happening again today. And we are going to have some discussion on both of them in my class, including both uh, the, the judiciary system, the legislative system, and the village elections in China. I'm just curious, are you covering anything about Chinese-African continent relations in the class? Uh, that's another great question. Um, so the, the, uh, the plan is that I want to teach two China classes. This one is uh, going to focus more on the domestic Chinese politics. The other one is going to be more like the external relationship as well as China's influence on other countries. There is this One Belt, One Road initiative uh, that, that helps the, uh, the, the, the developing countries to uh, invest in infrastructure. That is the reason why in the past weekend, G7 also announced its version of the Belt Road initi initiative to build back better. I think that's, that's the name of the initiative sponsored by Biden. So we want to understand such important you know, initiative like uh, the, the, Belt Road, the Belt Road Initiative. Uh, so that's going to be something I want to cover in the other class, but I don't know when I'm going to teach it, where I'm going to teach it, because I also teach at the Lafayette School of Public Affairs. So there is a great demand for that class as well. So uh, I'm going to discuss with the, the school and the department leadership about uh, when and where I'm going to teach that class, but definitely that is something I would love very much to cover. Um, in the class. For example, your question is uh, China's presence in Africa and how do African people view China's presence in their, in their country? Um, and this is a very heatedly discussed question. We do have some scholarly research to answer this question now. Uh, we, I will ask students to read some of those experiments, public opinion surveys, right? So we are going to answer these questions with data. Uh, but unfortunately, that's not covered in the current version of the class. But I do understand, like you, some other students are very interested in the class. Um, I will revisit the syllabus if there's a great demand and we can add another week uh, at the end of the class. Great. Yeah, I was just curious. That would be a fascinating class to teach also, just completely focused on foreign relations.
in the course description for the class you are teaching, you write that you will address some of the key challenges facing Chinese leadership, which are slowdown of economic growth, regime stability, pollution, corruption, and then coronavirus. Would you be able to briefly go over some of these and just describe them to our listeners? Of course. So I'm going to cover at least the think, three issues. I may add the African part to it, uh, but uh, there are currently three issues. The first one is corruption. The second one is public opinion. And third one is uh, public health and the coronavirus. Um, the corruption uh, part is mostly focusing on Xi Jinping's anti-corruption corruption campaign. And we want to understand whether it achieves its goal. Uh, so that campaign started in 2013, I think, I think roughly that, that time. And it's, it still stayed in today's China. So every few years, um, the central government is going to send uh, central officials to inspect uh, the provinces, the state-owned enterprises, to check whether there is corruption in that place. And they also allow ordinary people to report corruptions. Right? So this is the kind of, they, they argue, institutional, um, institutionalized anti-corruption campaign. Right? We want to understand whether that, is work, uh, that works. The short answer is it does work, but there is some side effects as well. So we are going to see uh, how it works and, and under what conditions there are side effects, ne especially negative side effects. For example, um, there is accumulating evidence that the anti-corruption campaign makes um, the bureaucrats not willing to work because they don't want to make mistakes. The fewer you work, the, the, fewer you work, the less likely you are, you are going to make a mistake. We're also going to talk about public opinion in China, in, 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 um, mostly from um, uh, the, the, the domestic politics side, that is whether Chinese people support the Chinese government. This part, we're going to see something very different from um, the, the, the journal, journalistic view, I would say. Um, we are going to read now the classical work on this issue. For example, uh, whether, does Chinese government censor those, uh, those um, discussion criticizing the Chinese government, right? Um, what's, what's the function, does the censorship, um, let me say, if the Chinese government allowed Chinese people to view the foreign media contents, uh, what change would happen to their uh, public opinion? And thirdly, uh, how do we understand, um, is there very high supporting rate for the Chinese government? Right? So th these are the basic questions that we do have some evidence, do have some data to answer. So we are going to um, read and discuss about this. As I said, the evidence is very different from what we have read on the media because the media paints a picture that Chinese people do not like the Chinese government. But unfortunately, the evidence and my personal view is that they do support, for whatever reasons, they do support uh, the, the, the Xi Jinping, the dictator, and the, the authoritarian government, mostly because they think the government can get um, important economic policies done and they can, um, they can get the, what they want. And the third issue is uh, the coronavirus, COVID-19. Right, we are going to see a very different way of dealing with this uh, COVID-19 virus than many other countries, especially in democratic countries. This is a very, very different way, but it's very consistent with the communist uh, version of governing the, the issue. For example, the Chinese government shut down uh, 
across the whole country, I would say, all the cities across China, very quickly, even during the Spring Festival. The Spring Festival was like the Christmas, the Thanksgiving um, in the United States. And the Chinese government asked the people to stay where they are, not travel during that period of time. So that takes a lot of courage, I would say. Um, and, um, and the Chinese government also sent um, officials, central officials, to those epic centers very quickly. For example, the vice premier in charge of health issues was sent to the epic center, um, Wuhan, the, the epic center of the COVID-19, and stayed there throughout the three months of, of, of lockdown. And she was there to lead the, um, the initiative to battle um, the COVID-19. Right? So these are very different uh, style of governance. And we are going to read some mo most recent research uh, that assess uh, the effectiveness of these policies. 18 months after the first outbreak in China, what is your assessment of how they handled the virus in terms of internal communication and communication with the rest of the world? Right. Um, so these are two separate questions. Right. Um, I, can only, I can only say what I know uh, about the, the, the process. First of all, the communication with the people. I think the first one or two months, the Chinese government didn't disclose anything um, to the public. There was evidence that the lo local authority reported uh, the, the incident in December of 2019 or sometime, already reported up. But there is also evidence that the central government didn't think this is going to be something huge. Because for example, Xi Jinping was traveling without a face mask with himself, right, to other places, uh, even to other countries, when there was uh, some report already uh, filed to the central government. So it shows that he doesn't think at least this is going to be something serious, probably at the advice of, uh, advised by some other people. So in the first few months, first one or two months, I believe it was probably the central government didn't think this is going to be a big deal, so there's nothing. But however, after the Chinese version of the Dr. Fauci, Dr. Zhong Nanshan, that's his name, alerted publicly to the whole country that the virus could be passed from people to people directly. Right? Because before his public discussion, the, the official account and the account from the uh, Ministry of Health was that there is no evidence to support that claim. After his, Dr. Zhong Nanshan's official appearance in the, on, on TV, Confirming this, the, the whole story is very different. The Chinese government made very strong, strong move to educate people about the basic knowledge of, uh, you know, wearing a face mask. At that time, the, the, I would say the Western media were not very supportive of such, such things. They think there was a violation of the human rights at that time. I still remember that uh, they make fun of that um, wearing a face mask at that time. But I would say that's very important that China asked all the people even to um, require everyone to wear a face mask and stay where they are, not to travel. But that was very quickly communicated to the people using its propaganda machine and asking all the grassroots level officials to talk to people, make sure they understand. I was there in China in January, 2020. So I, I experienced everything at that time. So the, the grassroots, officials would, they are going to knock at your home and make sure that you understand the policy and uh, 
and, and count how many people are there in your home. So they are going to do that every day. In terms of, so that, that continues uh, afterwards. So this is basically how China makes sure that the domestic people understood the policy. In terms of external um, relationship, uh, I think the question is more like, uh, is, is going to have very different versions. The, the Chinese government believes that it has notified relevant parties quickly enough. So I think that's the version they provided. But other countries would sometimes disagree with that part. And more recently, the question uh, is to probe into the origin of the, the COVID-19, right? So the first phase of the investigation was concluded and it was, there is not, there is not enough evidence to support that uh, China leaked the virus from the lab environment. But understandably, many other countries disagreed with that uh, investigation report. So as for a second phase, and now WHO is now going to have a second phase of that, that investigation. I will encourage people to wait and see the, the result of that second phase of the investigation. And then we can understand uh, whether China has uh, done something to, to the origin of the, of the COVID-19 virus. Uh, so that's what I understand as the current state. Uh, so just a follow-up to that, you were talking about how the investigation into whether or not the virus was created in a lab in China. What do you think about the sort of resurgence, especially in the U.S. now, of reconsidering that option of virus origin now that the Biden administration is in charge? I really, this, this is just my habit. I would like to approach the questions with the evidence, the fact we know. So the fact is that the Biden administration is very interested in pursuing this investigation. I think he also gave the order to the intelligence community that he would like to have a report on this uh, from the intelligence community, I think within 90 days. The Chinese government thought that was very inappropriate because how could you ask an intelligence community, mostly CIA, to have a report of this within a given period of time? So the Biden administration is very interested in pursuing this. Uh, I have no idea of uh, what's the result of the investigation will be, even though I think um, the Chinese government and American government hold completely different views on whether there is lab environment in the origin of the COVID-19. So we, I will still encourage people to wait for a serious report uh, from the WHO. I think that's something we should trust rather than the, the guesses and rumors. Definitely. Let's go more broadly now into U.S.-China relations. So in 2016, most Western media suggest that Xi Jinping was thrilled when Trump won the election over Hillary Clinton. Do you think, in your opinion, was the Trump presidency as good for China, relatively speaking, as Xi Jinping had hoped it would be? So I think it's very hard to prove that he was very happy or unhappy because nobody really, you know, uh, went to the Chinese White House and, uh, and really understood his mentality. But in retrospect, since the Trump presidency, the first, the four years was over already. So we can have an evaluation on the question you just mentioned. So definitely that was a start of the nightmare, I would say, to the Chinese government in retrospect. Uh, mostly uh, that was the start of deteriorating China-US China relationship. That's the start of it. 
In the Obama administration, there was definitely no doubt that the U.S.-China trade is going to do good to both countries. Trump thought very differently, and, as, and we see no sign that the Biden administration is going to very quickly reverse the course. Right? So Biden administration basically uh, stayed, uh, make, uh, didn't touch upon the Trump tariff, for example, over Chinese goods. Right? So that's the current state. Um, so in retrospect, I would say that China felt the Chinese government should feel, feel very bad about um, that period of time. And it was a huge challenge to the Chinese economy when Trump uh, levied those tariffs on the Chinese economy. So the Chinese response to the tariff was that there is tariff levied on the American goods as well. There is already evidence, and, uh, and I plan to ask my students to read those papers uh, in, in the second class, the foreign relation part of the Chinese politics. Um, there is already evidence that China targeted on the goods that is produced by um, the red states, the, the, the part of the, the United States that supported Trump. So there is evidence, and the evidence shows very compelling results that the, the strategy works very well. So China definitely uh, lost in the trade battle, but I believe the Trump administration and the American people as well uh, lost it. I read a news report in the last weekend that even today, many of the American goods um, couldn't find the replacement of the Chinese imports. So they had to continue to import from China because you cannot buy other reasonably good products from other countries for some industries. They have to apply for exception to the US trade uh, representative office. But that procedure was very lengthy, very difficult, and now it was almost impossible to get it because they will ask you whether you can buy similar goods from other countries. And the answer is sometimes you could, but they are not reasonably good. So they will ask for ex exception. So that also leveled a very strong pressure on American uh, business as well. So it's going to be something I believe that both governments are going to revisit very soon, I hope. What is your assessment of Xi Jinping and his government's expectations of a Biden presidency? How will a Biden foreign policy approach potentially shape and alter U.S. relations with China? That's another very good question. So my answer might be very different a few months earlier. Um, so at the very beginning, uh, I believe there was some consensus. Again, nobody talked to Xi Jinping personally, so we have no evidence to support this. But there was some consensus among the China experts that Xi Jinping government welcomed the, this new Biden administration, mostly because they believed Biden administration is going to reassess the tariff issue. I believe the past week was a very important turning point. China has already made several laws that, that clearly wanted to, you know, lost the confidence in the current administration and uh, already tried to be uh, harder in stance towards foreign governments. It passes several laws. I didn't see many Western media reporting them, but these laws showed signaled very strong words to the community that China is not waiting for any other foreign governments to change their mind. China has already changed its mind. It wants to hold a stronger stance and uh, collaborate more with Russia, Iran, and other developing countries as well. So I think another turning point in retrospect, which will be very important, was the two plus two uh, dialogue that happened. I believe earlier this, this year 
in Alaska uh, between uh, the U.S. Secretary of State, U.S. National Security Advisor, and on the China side, the two people are the Director of the Politburo member and the Director of Foreign Affairs, Yang Jiechi, and the uh, and the State Councilor as well as the Foreign Minister uh, Wang Yi. So these are the four people uh, talked in that dialogue. Uh, that was not heavily covered in the United States, but that was a very important and very salient issue in China. At the very beginning of the dialogue, there was this very diplomatic one minute of opening remark. That remark lasted more than one hour. So that eventually turned into a battle, open battle between the two sides, accusing each the other party of not doing good things to the world. And in that Opening remark, you can already see very clear sign that the two countries view the world politics very differently. I think the U.S. side mentioned repeatedly that China didn't follow the uh, international norm, international orders, right? Um, that that China should have abided by. The Chinese government viewed the issue very differently. So Chinese government does not recognize the so-called their their so-called um, international order. Uh, drafted, imposed by some wealthy countries like G7. The Chinese government is very willing to participate in the international order based on the UN, that is including all the countries in the world. Right? China, that's the Chinese stuff. So you can see that the, the two parties view world politics very differently, and they continue to implement these two different views afterwards. That is, we see the, the U.S., um, strengthened its traditional allies by having G7 NATO meetings, which the, the President Trump basically didn't have, didn't do during his presidency. And also to uh, visit countries like South Korea, uh, Japan, uh, and more recently India to, to, to strengthen their, uh, their alliance. The Chinese government, on the other hand, uh, is more interested in pursuing the relationship with the developing countries, that is the countries not included in G7, not included in the U.S. prioritized list of countries, that is the Iran, Russia, and some African countries as well. So these are the two very different uh, views of the world politics. And I believe that two plus two strategic dialogue earlier this year in Alaska was the start of everything. We're wondering if there's a specific part of the course for the fall that you're most excited about teaching? I'm more interested in, very passionate about uh, teaching the political institutions part. Many people will think that part is more boring, but to be honest, not many people understand that part. For example, the question is like, there is both a party and a government in China, right? The The Communist Party is the only party in China, only ruling party in China, and there is this government. Why do we have both a ruling party and a government which basically deliver the same function? We don't understand such questions because there are deeper answers to these questions. If we don't understand these questions, we cannot have good policy suggestions. Even for people from China, they probably don't understand the answers to these questions. So I'm very passionate about these questions exactly because they are the foundation for us to understand important policy issues. Uh, for example, I just mentioned another example is I mentioned um, there are two people uh, responsible for foreign affairs in China. One is the Politburo and the Director of Foreign Affairs. Uh, that's a party position. 
that is uh, uh, Yang Jiechi, Director Yang. The other person is Foreign Minister, and he also is the uh, leader of in the State Council, that is the uh, government position. What's the relationship relationship between these two people? Who is the boss? Who is responsible for which part of the foreign affairs? I understand I'm not going to delve too much into this specific question because I anticipate that I'm going to teach about this. Definitely will have to make this as the foundation for a second class, that is the foreign relationship of China and the world. But these are the foundation, right? For us to understand the policy issues because we don't even understand what they are doing. Otherwise we won't understand the policy implications of Chinese politics. Absolutely. The last question we have for you, we're putting you on the spot a little bit here, but we've been asking all of our guests in honor of a very long and challenging year, I guess year and a half now that we've had in politics and just the world in general. We've been asking everyone, what is one thing that makes you hopeful for the future? I think the students. I'm very passionate. The the happiest time I have is always to have the conversations with the students. They they make me more more hopeful of the changes that we we may have in the future. And I can see that some of them are very passionate about the contents that I teach. And I can see that they are more likely to become the, the, the game-changing people probably in the future. Look, um, so I'm a China expert, so let me focus on Chinese politics. And um, for American students, it's also very important to understand US-China relationship today, right? Uh, that's probably one of the most important bilateral relationship in today's world of politics. That's very different from uh, the Cold War in one sense. During the Cold War, the Soviet Union and the United States basically had very few, very little um, connections, I mean, um, through the people. There was very little trade. There was, you know, even if trade is most, most like, like oil and those, those, there is very few, very few people that is basically connecting the two, two countries. China and the United States are very different. There are, every year, many Chinese students are traveling to the U.S. to, to attend college, to go to graduate school. Uh, every year, many American people went to China, of course, for education as well sometimes, but mostly for trade, uh, for uh, tourism, and many things. That's very different. I want to say that these, this is the foundation for the U.S.-China relationship, not the leaders. The leaders will come and go. But the people's connections, the people's understanding of each other is most important. I, I feel that my job, part of my job, maybe mistakenly, but part of my job is to help the, the students understand what is really going on in China and help some of the Chinese students as well, because I have some Chinese students in my class. What is going on in your own country, right? So I think this is very important. Um, for a, a long-term view of the U.S.-China relationship. There is a tendency, I think I mentioned this in my previous post uh, interview uh, last year, there's a tendency that the two countries refuse to talk to each other. The two, even the people in two countries refuse to talk to each other because they think that they have very different worldviews, ideologies, so on and so forth. They think, think things very differently. I would still encourage people to talk to to each other. I think that's the foundation of the long-term view, stable relationship between the two countries. Not the leaders, 
it's the people who determine such healthy long-term relationship. I want that on like a poster. It's not the leaders, it's the people. That That's very hopeful. That gave me a lot of hope too. Thank you very much for coming back on the podcast, Professor. And we missed you. And I'm sure we'd love to have you back very soon. Excellent. Thank you. Uh, I look forward to that as well. For more information about 1050 Bascom, visit polisci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. 1050 Bascom is edited by Adam Wigger and Sam Beisman, produced by Amy Gangle and recorded remotely for now.